Welcome to Crossing the Chasm. I'm delighted to welcome and introduce Noni Session. She is a cultural anthropologist and the executive director of the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, which supports BIPOC and allied communities to finance, purchase, occupy, and steward collectively owned land and housing. As an Oakland native, Noni's diverse, formative, academic, and professional background contributes to her unique approach to economic development. Raised by teachers and small business owners, Noni cut her academic teeth on the challenge of equitable economic development. As a Fulbright-Hayes Fellow, she studied international humanitarian strategies for developing communities globally. Upon completing her doctoral work, she helped found several small-scale collective civic action networks. After a run for city council, where she garnered more than 43% of the District 3 vote, Noni saw a clear path to ameliorating resource disparities in her West Oakland community, building more cooperative networks and galvanizing opportunities for collective economic action. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Noni, thanks so much for coming on and welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. And I would like to begin just with a broad question that relates to the scope and the scale of the podcast itself. And that is to say, given the work that you're doing, how do you articulate or think about or talk about the chasms as you see them in society? Well, I am a cultural anthropologist by training. Um, this, this work I'm doing in, in cooperatives and, and collectively owned real estate is sort of uh, accidental. Um, but it, it, I came to the work, I think, because of that huge gap that I saw, at least in my town, um, my society, um, which is Oakland, California, but where I sort of cut my teeth on thinking about this was Nairobi, Kenya, um, in the field of international humanitarianism. And um, this chasm um, really stood out for me um, in 2016 when I ran for District 3 Oakland City Council. And I probably talked to a thousand people, many of which were our city leaders. When you interrogate them around why our cities look the way that they look, um, most of them sort of... um, uh, sort of resorted to what I, what started to feel to me like a really weak um, retort, which is that they have no control over the free market. And so what that says to me as a cultural anthropologist, but also as a human, also as a, as a third generation member of my community, is that your sense of what is possible for us, what, what, what uh, consequences our neighbors can suffer, um, what environmental outcomes are acceptable, um, what states of, of economic despair or prosperity that um, we can stand by and, and support for our citizens are based on market actors, right? In, in, in their responses, they, they, they speak of the free market still in this sort of classic invisible hand kind of way. But um, uh, you and I and many of us know that these are people making decisions every day and for the most part, profit-driven decisions that um, um, uh, are 
that uh, really wreak a lot of, leave a lot of destruction of communities and resources and systems in their wake. And so the, the, the chasm that, that really um, uh, kind of catalyzed uh, this work that I do with the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative was a sense that um, folks felt like they had no power in the face of the free market. Um, however, could be responsive to free market actors. Uh, so we launched an initiative where we contest the market and the principles of the market um, from a moral and ethical stance, as opposed to um, appeal to our leaders who are supposed to be our moral and ethical mouthpieces to engage with the consequences and the dynamics of the market on our behalf. So uh, it's sort of uh, in kind of a, 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 a rough way. We are cutting out the middleman um, despite us paying millions of dollars into our city, state, and federal municipalities. Um, we have to step over them and make choices that are more in alignment with uh, sustaining communities and economic systems and histories and stories and you know, something as simple as a park, we have to step over the city and the county in order to conserve um, a healthy and viable quality of life. I'm curious about your experiences as you were running for public office. Were you here when you were making this case and, and talking about these things? How did people in the community relate and respond to your message? Well, we did. We made a choice that um, we were warned against by many people. Um, but in my case, I felt like it was the only choice for me. We chose to not run on the classic platform, um, the, the conventional platform, rather, of uh, uh, jobs, policing, and housing, right? And I used that sort of, like, um, awkward voice to, <laughs> to, to ridicule um, the repetitious nature of, of, of so-called city priorities when they don't work and they continue to uh, sort of devolve every cycle in terms of what we think we can do around public safety, around um, economic resilience, um, and around um, stabilizing our families and communities and um, history. Instead, uh, we decided to um, discuss uh, a platform are based around solutions um, and radical solutions as opposed to a platform based around addressing a repetitive problem, if you understand the subtlety of the difference. Um, and so we ran on a platform of cooperative economics where, um, number one, we asserted that um, um, our local economy um, was being dominated by um, tech and corporate interests and served by our city leaders in kind of a, a, a blind, safe way, and that we had more possibility of recovering economically if we were able to build an independent cooperative economy that uh, was not based on uh, the, the vagaries and the demands of, of corporate tech interests that change from cycle to cycle, right? And there are a lot of consequences to that change. Uh, that I could talk about. Um, when we talked about things like public safety, we wanted to look at 
um, sort of the um, infrastructure that is understood um, as the generators of safety. So we talked about um, reconnecting um, our public parks and rec system with our youth support system, like summer jobs, which was always the case for you and me and most of us growing up. But those relationships have been severed. Um, in terms of, of, of housing, what we talked about um, in, in underneath the umbrella of, a, of, a, of, a, of an independent cooperative economic um, um, ecosystem that we could build easily build locally, when we talked about housing, we talked about the, 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 the misrecognition of housing, a basic human need, not even going as far as a basic human right. We're talking about a basic human need that we need to, to redirect and, and, and transform our understanding of the function of housing. And when you transform your understanding of the function of housing, then you can begin to uh, make interventions around the cost of housing who gets the lead on how housing is used and distributed, what we understand are our minimum obligations to our citizens around how we advocate um, for their best interest in those processes. So I'm talking about things like rent flight, where our medium rent in the Oakland and San Francisco Bay Area is $3,500 for a one to two bedroom unit, right? And and, and and in 2016, if you did the math, that meant even a police officer would have to work uh, something like 118 hours a week or 180 hours a week, I can't recall, in order to make his basic rent and not be rent burdened, which is the definition of that is 50% or less of your income going to your rent. 60% of Oaklanders are currently rent burdened. Um, and there, there's no, there's no sort of end in sight around um, that because of the absence of advocacy. So when we sort of shifted the discussion, not only towards solutions, but really viable ground level solutions that we could see the possibility of them panning out. I mean, as, in as little as ten years out into the future, across every demographic except the most wealthy or the most anti-humanistic demographic, which that could, that could do, be a lot of things, right? Um, folks were really activated by that vision. Many of them had been thinking toward uh, solutions for different parts of the vision, and they were very excited to um, get on board and contribute solutions that they had been working through, but had not really been received because in, um, many of those solutions are, are sort of like um, erroneously couched as anti-capitalist and thus, as you and I talked about before we started the call, anti-society, that um, there was not, has not been a real safe place before our campaign in 2016 for folks to ground those solutions publicly and, and en masse. So uh, we only lost by 1,500 votes, which is pretty um, interesting running against an entrenched incumbent in the pocket of uh, developers, as well as the fact that we only raised $10,000 and we took no corporate money. So when we came out the day after the, um, the campaign, having come so close to victory, we realized that that was a referendum for um, the platform that we developed um, on the way to um, the candidacy. 
Really interesting. Um, I'm curious, I want to get into some of those details, but I'm just curious, you opened up by talking a little bit about the market and these broader forces. I'm wondering how you think about how local actions in cities can affect and address these broader problems that emanate beyond the boundaries of those cities. Um, you know, I don't know if I have a very firm answer for you, um, but just off the cuff, if I had to think about how our city and how our county works, right? Um, I can see the reverberations through um, those kinds of the kinds of crossovers between our city networks and our county networks. And Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area is a cr- critical hub for the state of California in general. So our our mayor is is now our was was our uh, governor. Right, Jerry Brown, um, and our current mayor was the assistant of our former governor Jerry Brown. So there's a strong through line. Some people might call it cronyism, but another way to describe it is that's a strong through line from our local city politics, Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley, Emeryville, into our regional political framing, because we're actually bearing most of the the political economic, environmental brunt of how um, um, successful California is as a, as a union, as a state. And so when we produce solutions at the city level, um, often count at the county level, they want to um, adopt or pilot those same solutions. And when you're at the county level, you're as good as at the regional level. And our region is in Northern California. So that might be maybe kind of a, a sort of like stiff way of, of, of understanding how our work in Oakland affects the state. But we, we see it play out on a daily basis. So um, our work um, at the Oakland level has done things like um, help um, develop a post policy, Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act which is giving tenants first right, potentially giving tenants first right of refusal when, um, when, um, when landlords sell, that that's going to the state level. Um, we've changed some of the policy around um, bond money, Measure KK and uh, Measure A money, that distributing capital to developers to build more housing. And we've gotten um, some cooperative language um, and integrated into some of these regional, some of the language around these regional pots of capital for making a dent in this so-called housing crisis. So um, at the ground level, particularly Oakland with this history of activism and this huge body of, of folks who um, can see, potentially see their way to solutions, folks are looking to us to help formulate thinking at the state level. And we obviously know that the nation looks at California for its model as well. Can you give us a, a background on what you mean by cooperatives and then lead into the kind of cooperatives that you're proposing and, and pushing forward in Oakland currently? Well, cooperatives is, a, is an old economic model. It's, it's, you know, it's, without the name cooperative, it's, it's, it's one of the oldest economic models, which is collective economic action where folks gather together around a, a particular or a range of economic purposes or activities, and they share ownership 
They share labor. They share decision-making power. And they share surplus, something some people might call that profit. We don't tend to call it profit in the cooperative range. But they share surplus. And they redistribute it um, in various agreed-upon ways. Um, and uh, that is how th- their work, paired with other nodes of cooperative economic activities, is what makes for uh, an ecosystem, an economic system. The cooperative vision seems so very far away from us at this point in history as a, as a, as a sort of like widely accepted economic practice um, because we're living in a time where we experience capitalist exchange as the only economic system that's ever been um, healthy or robust enough to maintain this, what we call this quality of life, um, the kind of um, Western industrialized nation practices uh, that um, come with this kind of quality of life. And you and I were just talking about um um, climate change, really climate change being driven by um, economic growth and economic development. And the cooperative, it doesn't make any claims about growth or um, the thing that is the object of exchange, currency, or goods and services. What it does is, is it brings the access to, to profit or surplus back down to the human level. Whereas right now, it is strictly cloistered among um, this very small owner class. So all the labor happens at the, the ground level. Folks are separated from the profits or the surplus of their labor. And that surplus is accrued to individuals, corporations, entities that do not then circulate that capital in, in any sort of like robust or significant way back down to the body of people who create the value through their labor. So, so cooperative brings the value of labor back squarely into the hands of the folks who produce the labor themselves. Um, we study a really great book um, in our ecosystem called Collective Courage, written by Jessica Ford and Nimhart, which is the history of, of black cooperatives in the United States. Because immediately after emancipation, right, you have a, a sense from the, the, the situation of black Americans today that we never actually um, had a, a strong economic foothold in the United States. But even immediately after emancipation, I mean, like within a year or two, black folks cooperatively owned over 100 hectares of land on the North Carolina coast, right? Uh, Southern Cal- South Carolina, sorry. And over the next, the next 50 to 100 years, they were systematically judicially and extrajudicially dispossessed of that land and ownership. So we know about stories like Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the whole town, a black town, was raised, burned to the ground, most of its inhabitants murdered, and their assets seized, right? There are many other processes that through legal and extra-legal processes, like if you take a look at Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, you can see how even as, 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 as early as last week, <laughs> right, even as late as last week, and I'm being a little hyperbolic, but let's say five years ago, that um, Black folks and underserved communities were still being dispossessed 
of the value of their asset, which is usually house or land, through specific municipal processes. So the, the cooperative is a function um, of a community's desire to reclaim their sovereignty. And we know that sovereignty often comes through economic sovereignty. And we also know that our city leaders and municipalities, they respond to folks who have access to capital. And so if you bring capital down to the community level, then you bring um, governance power, municipal power down to the community level. So how is this playing out? It sounds like what you're saying is there's a long history of this, but it also emanates from a long history of racism and violence and aggression. How is, and the system is set up in a particular way, how are you all moving forward with a cooperative when it's so outside the bounds, it sounds like, of normalcy and and legalities in in the current system? You know, I actually wouldn't, wouldn't argue that the conditions we're in are specifically a, a, an outcome of, of history and uh, of racism, right? I would argue more that racism um, and economic discrimination are one of the many devices to support the um, resource accumulation of what we're now right now calling the 1%, right? So, so the cooperative is not necessarily a racialized response. It's a human tradition that's been displaced by a sense that our only viable economic system is a system of capitalist cultural production, capitalist economic production, right? So just to clarify that, right, this is a condition that all of us as Americans and as subjects of the Western state are suffering under right now. We did a Southern tour of the United States, and we, we, we went through towns that were all white, and we're, we're suffering as badly as, as, as any of the inner city conditions that we've seen, right? We went through a town that had 8,000 people, but had one of the largest dialysis clinics I had seen in Texas. That, that, that's a serious condition if we're living in one of the wealthiest countries on the planet that we have... Uh, towns that look like something like 60, 60% of the folks in the town have such adverse health outcomes that it has its own dialysis clinic, but no gro- no grocery store with fresh food in it. Okay. So it's important to be clear that, that, that what, we're, what we're confronting here is not a racialized issue. What we're confronting here is a, is a class issue and a distribution issue and a power issue and a consciousness issue around our sovereignty as, as communities and as citizens and around the fact that money, money, capital, currency can exist in anyone's hand. There's no one that's actually excluded from the ability to, to use and manipulate money for good or for bad. And so um, our work in Oakland, if, if this was the question you're asking me, is to, was to bring people into awareness of their ability to hold and use capital and use the determinative power of capital to make the choices that benefit them, right? And so we had to, we had to move through a lot of technical steps to get ourselves there. First, we had to, in 2014 and 15, we had to write in an exemption into a California securities law, AB 816. 
which um, at that point, um, non-accredited investors, that is folks with a net worth of a million dollars or less, were not a, are in general, are not able to invest in most um, endeavors. But in that case, for cooperatives, we're only able to invest up to $350 per individual. We raised the cap to $1,000, which meant that we were giving community-level people the ability to aggregate capital very quickly in order to collectively purchase properties at the levels you find them in the Bay Area, right? So if you pull together two to 400 people, you've got the seed of a $1 to $2 million project. And these are regular human beings who will have $1,000 sitting in their in their corporate bank account, Wells Fargo, Chase Bank, gathering about 1.5% interest rate, if that. And instead of letting Wells Fargo hold, capitalize, and use the money for more extractive capital growth, you divest your $1,000, you move it over to an organization like EV Park, and there are others like us as we're helping the field figure out how to um, um, sell their own securities, right? And and then the, the accrual of benefits um, goes to a community level project instead of a, 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 a global conglomerate, right? And the next step then was to demonstrate how to use the tool that we had made available. So we launched ground level capital campaigns where from one person at a time, we raised $1,000 so that we could buy our first project at $1.3 million in partnership with the Northern California Land Trust. The next stage was to begin to understand and model out how to how to scale so that EB Prec, the permanent real estate cooperative, didn't become a bottleneck, but uh, but a, um, a model and a and a catalyst for um, this spread across the sectors that were concerned with making some um, interventions around the cost of housing and the cost of land and the dispossession of community. So we wrote our own uh, federal application to the SEC and are now approved to sell securities nationally um, up to uh, $75 million a year over the next four years. And then we renew. Um, and, we, uh, and in the process of all, of all of the steps we've had to take, we, we have gathered up our learnings, consulted with um, nascent organizations, as well as large capital stewards. So we're working with foundations. Um, donor-advised funds, family funds, to demonstrate how you transfer capital to um, to organizations like ours so that we can do the kind of uh, culture-building work, community-building work that gets, gets our real estate projects positioned to be strong, durable, able to return investors' dollars, and also able to um, offer um, the folks who take uh, possession of the land and housing we buy autonomy, skill sets, and access to more resources and more power in their community. I'm not sure if I answered your question, though. So if you want to re-ask the question, please feel free. No, this is fantastic, and it's just what I'm looking for. I, I think most listeners probably have not heard about this kind of model, certainly haven't seen it or, or been a part of it. Can you say a little bit more about the $1,000 and, and who's participating and, and to what extent are the people who are putting forth that $1,000? What, what role do they have in this process? So um, I mentioned two processes to you where we were able to get access to capital. The first process uh, around AB816 was uh, California only. And that's how we got out of the 
the box to begin to uh, demonstrate this model. Um, we're now federally um, approved to sell um, in the 14 states across the nation. So those, those were slightly different uh, demographics. So the first set of demographics were, were wildly local, right? This is your neighbor, your grandma, your cousin, um, your local business who um, living in the conditions we've been living in in Oakland have really lost hope. And if all it took was $1,000 to contribute to some potential radical changes, they were happy to do it. We have a four-tiered membership model um, that reflects that uh, those those kinds of intentions. So our first category of owner, so we have a, a East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative is a people of color-led multi-stakeholder cooperative that supports everyday people to organize, finance, and acquire land and housing that they then cooperatively co-own and co-govern as members, owners of East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, okay? And so there are four categories of owners that help um, um, fill out this model. Um, the first category of owner, and this is the person we all serve, is the resident owner. Those would be the people in a conventional model that you might call tenants and would otherwise pay rent for the rest of their life. Our resident owners with no buy-in um, and, and, and none of the kind of financial hurdles that exclude them because of race or gender or poverty or economic conditions, our resident owners are brought in as members of the co-op and residents in the properties, the lands and housing that we buy. They pay a monthly contribution to the cost of the project that we've kept very low through bringing in impact dollars at 1.5%. And we co-govern and co-plan for our maintenance and um, um, uh, long-term control of the asset with our resident owners. Our next category of owners is the staff owner. And that's me, Anoni Session, Ojan Movichahi, Shira Shaham, Annie McShiris, B. Coleman, um, Scott Nanos, and Chris Chu. That's our current um, staff member body. And we are the stewards of the intentions of the larger EB Prague body and um, the mission um, as we have laid it out in our bylaws and in our collective meetings and conversations, right? And um, we do have a board that has appointed seats that assure community control, but most power to make decisions is advocated to the staff owners by the board. Um, our next category of owner is our community owner. And those are the folks who, um, with a, with a buy-in of dues of $10 a, a week, a month, or a year, even if folks can't afford it, we will pay the $10 dues for them. That's our steering mechanism. That's our accountability mechanism. That's also our mechanism to make sure that this idea is a scalable idea. So we do outreach, we do education, we do organizing um, so that folks understand that in order for us to, to make these transformations through a cooperative economic approach, we also have to um, reinvest ourselves with more than just currency and more than just the land and housing assets. We have to reinvest ourselves with inclusion in the conversation 
um, with visions for our own neighborhood, with plans, with smaller and larger plans to, 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 to propel and spread this idea through many sectors of society and many dimensions of our own personal daily work. Um, and then our last category of owner is the investor owner. And that is the person who buys one or a hundred, however many um, is the case for you now that we can sell federally, one or a hundred thousand dollars shares in the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative um, for a five-year term with a projected return of 1.5%. And that money goes strictly and only to our acquisition of land and housing projects that we then hand over to um, black Oaklanders, indigenous Oaklanders, underrepresented Oaklanders to cooperatively govern in partnership with the staff collective inside of EB Preston. How many properties do you have currently? Uh, three. We're on our third property, our first mixed use. So we have two residential. And so the first residential is a four unit apartment in North Oakland um, that houses um, um, uh, um uh, Filipino, Pacific Islander, um, um, teachers, um, lawyers, and activists. Um, our second um, acquisition is a single-family home in Berkeley, California, with a detached dance studio, and it houses um, uh, several um, Black women working artists and martial artists. Um, and uh, the, the importance of the detached dance studio is the, the, the goal of EB Prec, which is our acquisitions provide um, economic um, opportunities as well as housing through keeping the cost of the housing low, but also through um, designing and, in, and, and having an intention that within each acquisition, we look for um, um, revenue streams for the residents to leverage um, as part of building their livelihood um, there in that in that location with us. Um, and then our third acquisition, we closed escrow on in September of last year, um, is a mixed-use commercial um, acquisition, um, a historic black arts acquisition that has residential housing above and has a historic uh, bar and jazz venue below, a gallery and... Um, a, a, a back lot that we're going to green up and open it up for our cafe service, et cetera. So can you say a little bit more about the commercial element of all of this? Because a part of it is uh, having housing given this crisis, but what role do you see these commercial endeavors playing in the broader uh, vision you all have? Mm-hmm. Well, as I mentioned to you a few questions ago, um, that when we first sort of started to um, get kind of juicy around the potential of this idea that we could we could um, go around um, uh, capital holders and 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 solicit our own capital at rates that were much more justice based and sane for what we wanted to build for people. Um, I mentioned to you that we went we moved through a lot of southern towns. And um, that um, across the nation, our towns are falling apart. Um, uh, they're shuttered, they're closed. And so Oakland and West Oakland in particular, where we purchased this venue, is no exception. In fact, it is, um, it is, it is emblematic of what um, I, I'm trying to communicate to you around the conditions of our city. 
It's a corridor along 7th Street that at the height um, of its of its um, existence, and so we, we, we probably placed that around 1969 um, before the um, redevelopment um, um, plan was written, um, uh, supported 250,000 Black folks, all of whom, many of whom, most of whom migrated here to serve, work and serve in Oakland, the, the heavy labor on the port, um, uh, Oakland port, San Francisco port. So, so there was a whole community, there was a whole history uh, that developed around the 7th Street Corridor. Um, as, as it happens in most cities, when cities are doing um, Department of Transportation Improvement, et cetera, um, displacement, eminent domain, is, 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 is centered in the most um, underrepresented cities in terms of affluence, in terms of gender, in terms of race. Um, and so what that meant is the 7th Street Corridor was the, 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 the subject of no less than six different instances of municipal removals. And, and the population, um, the black population is now down to 26,000 from 250,000 roughly. And so Esther's Orbit Room was one of the last cultural sites that was still holding, anchoring um, Black sociality, Black economics um, for the 7th Street Corridor and for West Oakland in general. And so what we understand is um, as cities have focused on um, uh, uh, making interventions into what they call the housing crisis, and actually, to be clear, there is not a shortage of housing in the Oakland Bay Area. We have over 20,000 empty units. Um, and, and, and we get the, the, the arguments around vacancy rates, et cetera. However, for the number of folks that are rent burdened and for the number of folks that are laying out on the sidewalk every night, which numbers have hit about 9,000 now, um, if we did not tolerate housing at the rate of $3,500 a month while we tolerate a $12 an hour um, wage compensation, right? If we understood that to be immoral and illegal in some ways, because there are cities across the United States that have banned some of these extractive economic practices that are really contributing to the failure of our city, um, our, our situation would look much different. And so the thing is, is housing is, is critical, but if folks don't have the capital, the resources, the, the, the structural support, to, to live in and maintain that housing, there is no recovery. You're still building housing for a future labor population that doesn't exist and is not being hired from among current and legacy populations in Oakland and the Bay Area. And so what we're, what we're experimenting with with our commercial acquisition is what does, what, what does an economic engine look like? started from the ground up. How do you restart an economic ecosystem when you're not getting any sort of um, notable support from your city municipality? The first thing you do is you bring down the cost of running a business. The same thing we're trying to do in terms of bringing down the cost of living in a house with a roof and a door, (laughs) you bring down the cost of running a business. Um, 
And so we, the Esther's Orbit Room Cultural Revival Project is a pilot of how you, how one can purchase a mixed use um, uh, housing, land and housing acquisition, right? Um, with impact dollars. And then we're working to support the small businesses and small artists who will ground into the commercial space. We are looking for our, our, our artists and our artists collective to live above the commercial uh, acquisition and reignite a community that then often will create peripheral economic opportunities for folks who circulate through the space or around the space. And we're looking at the rest of the corridor to reproduce these conditions, these sort of like laboratory conditions, um, where the cost of running a business is brought down by at least 40% by the way that we bring in our capital. And so the question is, if it wasn't so expensive to live in a house and run a business, could we revive our economy, our local economy, without um, all of these kind of barriers that seem to be the case when you ask our city leaders why our cities are falling apart? So the mixed use is is, a, is an experiment in, um, in, in, in creating an economic engine that no one has uh, sort of dared to experiment with yet. How have city leaders responded to your work? Um, in word, rhetorically, very excited about our work, right? Um, they use it to um, lead in things like the mayor's conference just recently happened. And they, it was, the hilarity of it is they had a large for-profit seeking developer <laughs> do a presentation on our grassroots um, nonprofit seeking project. <laughs> so we thought we thought you know the irony of it was pretty classic you know city leader style where folks want to parade out the the, the hope and the possibility to continue as usual to continue the same economic activities as ever, to continue the same economic behaviors as ever, but rhetorically use this one project in this 420,000-person city to demonstrate their progressive economic politics. However, it remains to be seen how much support we will eventually receive from the city when it's time to go to permitting, et cetera. So in language, it looks great, and there will be a lot more political hurdles for our, us to hit after our architects have returned to us with our next um, stage of plan. I'm wondering, you're early on in your work, and you only have a few properties, but how have people responded to it? How has it affected people who are living in them? How has it affected the neighborhoods in which they are, where they're located? So I think there's two two very different answers to your question. So in, in a specific concrete manner, we we surf we surfaced a great um, story for one of our resident owners that I had no idea about because um, I know this woman. She's a very vibrant, powerful woman. She founded a project called the Alipato Project, which is the only law firm that um, sues um, domestic abusers in civil court on behalf of their victims. Like, this is a pretty powerful woman. We invited her to a speaking engagement with a bank that we were partnering with. And she shared in that that um, when I called her, 
to tell her that we had finally closed escrow because it was a pretty, it was a pretty tenuous um, negotiation with the owner. She was sitting alone in a cafe, and what we all did not know about her history is that as a child, her mother was a constant victim of serious domestic abuse to the point where they had to run a lot and hide when the the husband would find them again. And so she's never had permanence. And when she found that her apartment building that she had been in for 10 years, building her life with her partner with was going on sale, she, she sort of started to experience that that trauma again. And she didn't, we didn't know anything about this. So when I called her and she was in a cafe alone doing some work, she began to weep in the cafe in public. And they have now birthed their first child, which she thought she could never do because she never knew when she was going to be unstable again. Uh, incidentally, they've named the baby after me. <laughs> the baby's name is Noni Jen, which is like, I don't know, so, so deep to me. I feel so deeply about that. So that's an example of the kind of stability, just knowing that someone will never sell your home from underneath you. In a, in a wider sense, our project has activated the imagination of our whole city. It's it, it activated the imagination of the, it, and I am not overstating this, Ryan, of the entire cooperative ecosystem. I had no idea what this was going to do for people to see a bunch of, um, um, you know, ridiculous cultural activists walking around, moving millions of dollars in capital and not hoarding it for themselves, but rather finding people to give it to and then supporting those people so that it's permanent. Um, there's been several preps that have started in other states. There's been one that's locked in Montreal, Quebec. Um, we have consulted over 30 or 30 uh, nascent organizations and they've used part or, or in whole. Um, there are several city municipalities who have adopted our approach. There are no less than 13 different um, large-scale, um, high-net-worth foundations who are transforming um, their officers and their internal um, technical experts' capacity to move capital to projects like ours. Um, I could go on. Like it, it has moved further than I ever imagined it's become like a legacy project because the thing is, when we look at the way that um, organizations like Goldman Sachs structure the deal, these folks always work at the edge of the law and not for the greater good. And I think most of us, none of us imagine that we could also work at the edge of the law, but for the greater good. I love that. I mean, the work is extremely inspiring and, and super interesting. If listeners are interested in learning more about this or maybe even financially supporting it, where, where can they go to get more information? Uh, they can go to www.ebprec.org and they can go to ebprec.org slash esters to learn about our project in particular. They can go to ebprec.org to invest to see ways to support the project. And they can just go to ebprec.org to learn all about us, check out our silly little blog. Uh, we do a lot of little special things to bring knowledge 
um, closer to our community. So they might really get a kick out of it. We have our bylaws on there. Um, we, we post a lot of that so folks can adopt it wholesale or in part. Um, and if they really want to get very, very deeply involved, they can email Noni, N-O-N-I, at ebpreck.org, Annie at ebpreck.org, or Ojan, O-J-A-N, at ebpreck.org. And we'd love to hear from them. And I want to end with just a couple questions that are a little bit more personal. I, I'm, one of them, just to start is, and you've already hit on this a little bit, but Beyond the work you're doing personally in your organization, what do you see in society, either in Oakland or elsewhere, that's inspiring, that gives you energy? You know what I have been noticing um, in this field is I've been running across a lot of Native folks who are really leading some visionary work, visionary economically restorative work. And there's something, despite the, the sort of like um, the sort of obscenity of of the reservation um, model, they there are some of these folks who have taken this reserve land, you know, with it not being arable or anything like that, and use that space to build um, um, regenerative centers for their people to revive um, the, the the spatial politics. Of, of rebuilding community in terms of how you design your buildings and how you use circles as opposed to, to squares and folks who have really sort of um, use language reclamation and, and cultural practice reclamation to rebuild um, economic solidarity and economic resilience. And I see a lot of grassroots organizations like my black and brown organizations looking to our first people's brothers and sisters to help us model out old but new versions of power and power sharing, right? We're starting to have an awareness that this economic system that we thought we were trapped in is, 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 can be short of the military, and we know that that's always a possibility, can be as much of a fiction as any other fantasy world that one wants to build by force or by coercion. So that's really what is like um, opening my my heart and my mind nationwide is is seeing people increasingly refuse these historically entrenched economic um, and cultural power practices that that trap us all in this sort of like spiraling condition we're dealing with here. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, Relatedly, have, have you seen or heard or listened to anything recently that has really made you think more deeply and challenge some of your own existing ideas and assumptions? Well, you know, I'm a sci-fi baby, like long before it was cool <laughs> to, to, to like sci-fi and long before they started calling anything that wasn't like nonfiction sci-fi, which is pretty irritating to people like me. Um, <laughs> um, it, it actually, there are two, two authors that really trigger and like um, this sort of creative uh, experience inside of my brain. Um, and one is Ursula, Ursula Le Guin, who, uh, if I had to recommend something, it would be her short story called The, the, the Unreal and the Real Volume 2. It, it, you, it must be Volume 2. Volume 1 is great, amazing Ursula Le Guin. She writes in about seven different genres. But Volume 2 is critical because she 
she does these things with language. For example, her short story called The Maze Builder, where there is a being that we presume is a man, and he wakes up in this maze, and there's this giant um, figure who is setting him to these tasks that he doesn't understand because he's from an epic of, of, communi- of classical communication that uses body gestures instead of language. So he goes into this long sort of lament around all of the modes of communication he tried to speak to. And what you witness there is how um, convention, how reality, which can be very specific to the person of the moment, feels completely universal from inside of the self, inside of the subjectivity. So there's something pretty crazy balls about realizing the fact that I'm using these these 17 um, phonemes to communicate something to be completely different where, you know, if we're talking about bats, like, you know, feeling vibration to communicate, but remembering that that we are as, 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 as moment-specific as any other beast brings you down to this level of reality that I don't think we get a lot in this society. And I'd say the other um, work of similar short stories that I think is equally powerful is um, Octavia Butler's posthumously published uh, work of short stories called Blood Child. And it's, it's similar where they use these little vignettes or snapshots to, 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 to sort of like disturb the, evident, the inevitability of this moment that we're in, of power, of race, of gender, of identity, right? I think that's what's got us all stuck right now in a, in a physical sense, that we think this existence that we're in is inevitable. But it's as much of a chance, chance configuration as any other thing happening, like this bird swinging at the tree. Thank you for those recommendations. Super interesting. And then just lastly, you know, some of this work can be overwhelming. I'm wondering, uh, what in your day-to-day life do you do to bring you peace and joy? Uh, I'm <laughs> actually raising $5 million in um, a year and a half has been pretty intense. So I've been living in the forest for the last five months. I'm actually moving back to the city next week. I think I'm ready, um, but I've been living in um, the Navarro Forest since November, since the middle of November, on Northern Pomo territory, and um, literally coming out of my cabin every day and hugging a tree, which actually, and this is not any, any of this sort of like new age stuff, specifically trees emit um, uh, an energetic field that recharges bodies, but in my case, a human body. Um, so I've just been going out hugging trees every day to recover from this really intense state of depletion that I've been in, I think, for longer than this capital raise, but really it hadn't become very clear to me how much um, sort of like life energy I was lacking living in this intense urban environment. So um once I move back, I guess I'll just have to drive 15 minutes to keep up with my tree hugging practice. I love that vision. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing. It's been wonderful talking with you. And I appreciate you uh, ma- making time for talking with us. Thank you so much. Likewise. I look forward to uh, you sending over the recording. I, I'm looking forward to it too. And I'm looking forward to listeners hearing this because I think it's something they're not used to. And it's uh, something that I think is quite powerful. So th- thank you again. Ooh.
so exciting. All right, uh, get in touch if you need anything. I'm really grateful for Noni joining me today, and I appreciate you all listening in. Thanks so much. As always, I want to thank my executive producers, Dan Phillips, Cody Bayless, and Chris Flores. Hope you enjoyed the show, and thanks for tuning in to Crossing the Chasm.